0: So, Haley, welcome to the Every Mind Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How
0: are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We just had a casual conversation for eight minutes, and um, <laughs> I was like, we should have hit record because we was should a, have a good conversation um already. <laughs> so so no, thank you for taking the time out to to join us on today's podcast. I'm really looking forward to this. this this interview. But I think we always start with a little bit in regards to your background. And I think it's always best for you to share that rather than me, you know, pull something from online and and do my best to tell your background. So if you can give everyone listening a little bit about who you are, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Hayley. I am um, a qualified occupational psychologist, have been in the profession for almost 25 years. Um, Didn't start off as that um, I won't go through my my dim and dark history, um, but I did a series of kind of just random jobs after I did my undergrads and then fell into occupational psychology by accident. It wasn't kind of part of my grand plan, but I feel really fortunate because I fell completely and utterly in love with the work that we do. Um, uh, I left I kind of veered away from pure occupational psychology. So, you know, doing stuff around organisations and leadership, I veered away. I went into local government um, for a bit and my plan was only to go for two years. Um, so I started off my career at the BBC and then went into local government. And yes, yeah, so my plan was two years going. I went in as the head of organisational development for an authority and um, And I ended up staying 11. I just, I fell completely and utterly in love with local government and the wider public sector. And I think it was the first time probably in my life that I really understood the power of doing work that connects to your personal values. So doing social good and helping some of the most vulnerable people in society is really important. And even though I wasn't necessarily doing that in a direct way in my first role in local government, I was in some shape or form helping people in the authority do that. So, yes, I ended up in a series of increasingly bigger corporate gnarly at times leadership roles um, and then made the decision in 2016 to leave. So I had a series of really awful Personal things happen, um, so losing losing a loved one and terminal diagnosis for another loved one, and it it just I was in my early forties and I wanted to come home to my roots as an oxyc, um, and I'd wanted to set up on my own for a while, but just hadn't had the courage to do it, and it really took two massive things happening to almost light. That fire if you like and give me the courage and so yeah and so I've been working for myself as a practitioner as a as an independent practitioner since 2016 Um, and I also teach as well so I teach at several universities on master's programs in occupational psychology and I co-manage the MRes in professional practice in occupational psychology at Birkbeck so that's for trainee psychologists who are wanting to start their doctorate journey um so yeah so that's it might not feel like a nutshell to your listeners but that is is a Mm. nutshell because I could go into lots of detail but um yeah I've I've got a very varied history but at the core of it has always been my love of understanding behavior understanding why we do the things we do I'm fascinated Mm. by that and always have been ever since I was a little girl
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the podcast where we'll probably dive deeper into a lot of that stuff anyway, because I'm just, I'm always really intrigued by it. But, um, you know, thank you for sharing. And it's, it's great to hear, you know, that kind of mix of experience, I'm sure mm-hmm. across, you know, local government and then different sectors. And then, you know, now working for yourself, I'm sure you've learned lots along the way. And, and definitely because of the aim of today's podcast, we'll dive into a lot of that stuff. But, you know, I'm always really intrigued in the kind of personal element behind it as well. And, you know, you said that, you know, it's been something that you've always been aware of in terms of like people's behaviors and stuff like that. Do you know personally where that, where that comes from? Have you?
1: Yeah, I, I grew up in a volatile household, shall we say. Um, so I'm a working class girl, grew up in London, South London in the seventies. Um, so, so poor, a very poor background and, um, and I, I, and a volatile household and, So I think there were two things that really stood out for me at at an early age. The first was becoming hyper attuned and sensitive to almost like blinking, you'd miss it, like micro changes in the environment. Just the vibe that someone gives off, like how their mood can change Mm. and becoming hyper attuned to that. Um, and there was some research, um, I think it was from Sweden, there was some research anyway that said children that grow up in volatile and or violent households um, are more likely to be emotionally intelligent, in inverted commas, as adults because you learn very early on to just be become hyper-attuned to other people's emotions and feelings and how they might change. So that was the first thing. The second was, as I say, you know, working class girl uh in a in a poor household in part of south london i grew up in a part of south london that i'm ashamed to say um was a host for the the national front as it was it was known and some of my friends were from different um ethnicities at primary school and just seeing that how how people treat how other people treated them um I just became really, again, hyper-aware and curious about how people can treat each other, how people can behave in awful ways to other humans, and but also acts of kindness to each other as well. And, and again, I became really interested in why are they behaving like that and why are they behaving like that? And so it kind of really, those two things together just really combined to... Just make me naturally focus on and and always paying attention to behaviour, whether it's other people's or whether it's my own, and just mm-hmm. always asking the question: What's behind that? What's going on there?
0: Mm, it's really interesting. It makes me think a lot about yeah. I've I've explored that a lot recently because um, you know, I always I always say I was I was brought up in a in a, in a loving household and I was, mm-hmm. but equally at the same time, you know what? You know, my my dad suddenly took his own life when I was eighteen, and um you know i was always of the of the the belief that we didn't know that there was anything wrong with my dad until it was almost yeah. too late but at the same time there was definitely times where i felt that i probably wasn't able to get my emotions um served right by mm-hmm. my dad because of course he's definitely dealing with stuff that we didn't know that he was dealing with and then and vice versa you know my mum she was extremely caring compassionate she would do everything for me and my brother But, you know, she had her own challenges from from her childhood and that turned into, you know, troubles with alcohol and everything else. So it's funny you say that because I've Mm. always looked at, you know, my sensitivity and my, you know, ways of like picking up with emotions. And I think relevant to your story, a lot of us do it to protect ourselves sometimes. Mm. Right. Um, And I'm sure from your example, absolutely. Volatile household, you're doing that because you want to make sure you're protected. You want to see it before it gets to the point of. My, and, you know and it becomes too late so absolutely it's super interesting and I'm sure you know as you've, you've gone into adulthood and stuff there's been lots of work that you've done on that as well mm.
1: isn't it? yeah I ended up seeing a, a, a therapist back in mm-hmm. 2005 so I had the option of going uh, this is when I worked at the BBC I had the option of going on the leadership program that was being run at that point now the strange thing was is that I was helping to deliver that program so it it felt a a bit a bit strange I was I was just turned 31 at that point and I think I think the start of your decades are natural points where most of us pause, take stock. We look back and go, you know, what have I achieved or what have I done? Do I want to carry on doing the same thing? And, and what does the next decade bring me? And I've always found that for me personally, like the the start of, of each decade has, has been a natural kind of crossroads point. And so for me at the age of 31, I thought I felt like I needed something different. I was becoming really aware of some of my unhelpful behaviours. So the behaviours that had served me, as you say, that protected me as a kid, Mm -hmm. that I'd taken into my younger adulthood, and then subsequently, um, as a working adult, um, the things that had served and protected me actually were becoming my undoing as a professional Mm -hmm. and as a leader, And so I felt I needed something deeper. And to, to my boss's credit, at that time, he was like, fine, he said, let's not waste money putting you on the leadership program. Um we'll spend that money. <laughs> and so they funded me seeing this coach who was a therapist by background. So they were an executive coach. It was one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life.
0: Yeah.
1: But one of the most powerful. I mean I went to a very dark place um part way through. And she said that was a natural part of the process because we went right back to when I was like two years old and we we met every week for an hour for twenty weeks and it was brutal. But I came, I, 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 yeah, I I came out. Ju- it was almost like a butterfly coming out of the mm-hmm. chrysalis, and I it helped me make so much sense of stuff. It also helped me own my own <laughs> part of my vernacular, my own shit. It just helped me yeah. like start taking responsibility rather than blaming everything around me and. um yeah hugely powerful to go through to go through that and it's interesting because when you train as a clinical psychologist that's a natural Mm. that's that's expected but when in the other disciplines for example occupational psychology which is which is the field that I'm in that's not expected but I think it should be yeah I think it should be I think anybody who is practicing some form of psychology and working with the public you need to have gone through some some form of intervention whether it's coaching or counseling or therapy or to to help you face yourself
0: Mm.
1: uh, and know what you stand for and understand more about your own biases and yeah hugely powerful
0: yeah i'm a big advocate of it you know i put a post out the other day about just finished a session with with Anne, the therapist the lady who helped me when i was 21 and you know that's you know fast forward years and years and years and i still go i don't go as regularly as i used to but i still go and i I put the post out there to say i didn't go today because i'm broken i didn't go today because there's anything wrong with me i went there because you know, I want to be the best leader, dad, husband, you know, son that I can be. And mm. it's it's funny. I always walk into those sessions with, and now I don't really need this. <laughs> I don't really need this. I'm good. And then you walk out with like, oh wow, like I've gone deeper. Like <laughs> I need to do this. I understand this differently. It's mm. it's. I think I'm a huge advocate of it. And and equally, I think bringing it into the work that you now do around leadership and, mm. and management. Um, in my experience, and I'm generalizing here. A lot of them are quite specifically of a, a leader, a, a leader in a business. You know, there's these walls, there's these kind of mm. like, you know, barriers in, in the way of like, we, I don't want to talk about this stuff. Is that something that you've seen in the work that you do? And and also, how do you look to kind of address that?
1: Yeah, I think it varies. Um, so it depends on the context. Mm. Um, I always joke with my students, that's the standard psychologist response to anything is it depends. (laughs) Um, So it depends on the group or the person that I'm working with. It depends on things like their background, their age, their gender, their beliefs, their life experiences, their professional experience. It just depends on a whole host of things. So, you know, I might. So, for example, I was working with an NHS trust Mm. um, a couple of weeks ago. And it was medical and non-medical staff. So it's mixed group. And they were really open. Most most of them were like hugely open about talking about this stuff and talking about behaviour and their own and their biases. And then I might work with another group because they're they're coming from different contexts who just poo poo it and think it's all a, a bunch of as what as one leader i i once had the pleasure of working with for a team build said this is all just pseudo nonsense pseudo mm-hmm. scientific nonsense <laughs> yeah so you know and that's that was his that's his right to to think that so yeah it, it depends and i try not to i try not to to judge mm. particularly when comments like that are made again i take it back to what's behind that mm. why are you why are you doing that there's a great book that I've been slowly but surely because it's not an easy book called um why do you behave like that mm. um and it's about how our childhood stories we take them into our adult lives and we and as leaders we take them into how we show up as leaders mm. it's a really good book for coaches who who work with leaders on on their behavior um and some people are open to that and some people aren't and mm. again as i say it depends
0: yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, it's very, very, very relatable. I did a, a session this morning with one of our clients, Superdry. So, like all of their their managers in stores, all like, nice,
1: free they clothes. Love, they
0: love it. No, no, not yet, not yet. <laughs> but they, they they loved it, right? And it was yeah. like, let's talk about vulnerability, and, and 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 you know, it was engaging. And and mm. you know, the, the the client told me that that would be the case. And then I've had examples like you've just shared there, where he will be delivering to I don't know client in a different sector maybe a financial sector or something mm. like that and it's very much sit down you know oh is this gonna make me mental this talk yeah. or you know I'm busy I've, I've got calls midway through just gonna let you know that yeah. and it's I used to take that really to heart um but now I do the same as you I'm like what, what's behind that like what what's why are you reacting in this way when you see like mental health let's talk about our yeah. feelings um on a a presentation so I think it'd be really good to know a little bit more about kind of like the exact work that you do um because I know you've got halo psychology and also as well um find your hive and thrive right so what's Mm -hmm. what's the kind of like the stuff that you do on a a day-to-day as an example
1: so day-to-day um so with my halo psychology hat um so around 50% of my work through Halo is coaching. So in particular, executive coaching. So I work with anyone from kind of first, a first time manager, um, you know, the rabbit in headlights, what the hell do I do now? I've got all these people Um, all the way through to kind of board level chief, execs, managing directors uh, and chairs. Um, and so that kind of deep one to one work, and I love that. I, I and I always feel really honoured when people select me as as their their coach because I believe in people, giving people agency. I, um, it's their choice as to whether they work with me or not. Um, so that's like fifty percent of my work, and then and then the other fifty percent is really a mix of um, running masterclasses and workshops and courses for leaders and managers um and hr and od practitioners as well on um i mean that the the most favorite topics um at the moment and have been unsurprisingly for the last few years are around resilience Mm -hmm. psychological safety my flagship program is how to build a high performing team so um i run that a few times a year but but predominantly is stuff around resilience and creating psychologically safe cultures and really exploring leadership and then i do the occasional kind of away day or team building team development and the thing that clients say they like is i'm not kind of coming in as this theorist who just spouts a load of stuff but they've, they've never lived in the real world you know mm. i i've i've been in operational and strategic leadership roles that have been quite brutal at times and and so a lot of them appreciate the the reality and the, the, the pragmatism as well, all be, all underpinned by evidence. Yeah. Um, I find Your Hive and Thrive is more a, a passion project, if you like. So yeah. that's where I work with women um, one-on-one who are either wanting to start their own business or maybe are in the early stages. So my doctoral research was in female entrepreneurship. Um, And in particular, how women define success and how they succeed in the first three years. So we know that in the UK, for example, around that the percentages vary according to who it is saying it. But on average, around 60 percent of businesses close in their first three years Mm. in the UK. And quite a significant number of those are female owned. So I was really interested in can I can I speak to some women in one of my studies who've managed to navigate that really turbulent first three years that we all go through as business owners? Um, and what are the things that they do? So I, I explored the psychological factors and how they define success. Um, so I looked at things like that, what are their values, what are the competencies they use, and, and any kind of strong personality characteristics. So one of my studies was the first ever to look at values in relation to uh, female entrepreneurship uh, and business ownership in general. So yeah, so I've been working with increasing numbers of women, um, some of whom are still in corporate leadership roles who are wanting to make that leap, but they're a bit frightened. Mm. Um, I was coming across that more and more. It was one of the it was one of the motivations for my my doctoral research. Um, and then I'm working with a few, as I say, who are maybe in their second year and they they feel a bit stuck. So yeah, so very varied.
0: Mm. And
1: then I t- and then then I run one of the programs at Birkbeck as well. So it keeps me out of mischief, Paul. I've got Absolutely. lots of song. there's
0: there's a lot there. there's a lot. And I really like the idea of um you know helping helping you know women into into entrepreneurship. Again, you no. Know, in the HR community in particular, I do see a lot of people wanting to jump ship from that corporate mm-hmm. world, not everyone, you know, you and I know it takes a certain, certain mind to, to navigate through, um, self-employed and, and entrepreneurship, but there's a lot that I'm seeing now set up as like consultants and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it, and especially with, you know, what's happened in the last few years, there's definitely been a bit more of a, a push to it, but I think having that support from someone who has done it and other people that have done it I think it's really really important but you know the main question I've got is how, how do you personally juggle all of that because there's there's a lot there so I know we were speaking about it before I hit record but what yeah. do you do to make sure you're juggling all of that whilst obviously prioritizing your own self
1: yeah um great question it's one that I get asked quite a lot particularly from those who were wanting to make the leap into being their own boss and from some of my students as well um I've always been very good at managing my time and having boundaries ever since I was young. um, And particularly when I went into the the world of proper work, not just a Saturday job, when I went into my first kind of corporate job in my early 20s. Um, So it's always kind of come naturally to me. But I think... I've had to really amplify what I do as time has gone on. I mean, when I worked in local government, there was one point where I had three leadership roles. So I had my own and I was covering two others, Mm. um, big services. And so I had to really have boundaries in place whilst making sure I I kept an eye on what matters. And part of that is being prepared to not do everything, Mm. which I think societally we're not geared up for. Where and unless we're kind of busting through every absolutely every single item on our to-do list, it's a failure. I was working mm-hmm. with a a leadership group last week. They are they're, uh, they're uh, on a leadership program for their profession, so they're from different organisations, and we were talking about exactly this. And there's a real power in what what really matters to me to get done, and what am I prepared to say no to? So that's, that's kind of often my starting point as we were talking about before you press record, um, Fridays are my non-work day and I've kept that. So as I was saying, you know, Fridays originally were, I was looking after my mum who was terminally ill. It was like hospital trips or going out for lunch with her and having some time with her before she, she died. And, and I ended up keeping that Friday, um, as time for me. So I've already kind of got that space. one of the things that comes up with the women that I'm working with, who are either wanting to set up their own business or have set up their own business is knowing what you're going to say no to and clients you're going to say no to Mm. as well. So I don't say yes to every piece of work that comes through. Now I know there's an element of privilege around that, um, particularly at the moment, cost of living crisis and, and, and that, but um I think taking it back to what does success mean for me? What do I want Halo to be about? And what do I want my reputation to be about as Hayley? Um, I want to make sure I'm always doing the best work possible, you know, as a practitioner and the kind of work that I do, I ha- when I sh- I'm i having to show up and be my best self, mm. well, I can't be my mes- best self if I'm saying yes to everything and cramming my days full. Mm. Um, and so I-, I kind of always take it back to, it's really important to be my best self. Clients need to get the best out of me. Um, And so it almost legitimizes me keeping space in my diary and saying no to certain things. Um, I mean, I said to you today, I had somebody come through, I've worked with them before and they, they said, Oh, there's a couple of people I'd like you to coach. And now I could have thought, Oh, I can shoehorn them in, that's not going to be a quality interaction for those two people and, they, and it's public money. And I take that really seriously. And so I've had to go back and said, depends when you want to start, the earliest would be the new year. Mm-hmm. I'm sensing they, that won't work for them. And, um, but yeah, the work that we do in the field of psychology or behavior change or, or, you know, mental health, we are the instrument Mm. One of my mentors, Dr. Mianchen Judge, who passed away in August, but she always, she wrote a brilliant article called The Self as an Instrument. <clears throat> and it's one that I get any practitioner that I'm mentoring, any student that I'm working with to read because it's about how we show up as coaches, as practitioners, as consultants in the behavior space. Um, and We need to be our best selves. And to do that, we need to make sure we're giving ourselves sufficient space and
0: time. Sorry, look.
1: that was a right old long answer, wasn't no, it? No, it
0: was a really good answer. A really good answer. I have to just search that article as well. Um, I'll,
1: I'll send it to you after the call.
0: Yeah, please. That would be fantastic. And, and as, as you were talking, I was thinking about a lot of it must be managing expectations, you know. And, mm. and again, with expectations, I feel like a lot of it is um, self fulfilled expectations sometimes. It's like, I'm juggling so many balls, but I'm fearful mm. that I'm going to drop one. But actually, you drop one. <laughs> you know, you're a human being at the end of the day. Or, you know, I'm worried about that client never working with me again in that situation. Right. But, but again, these are all sort of like self fulfilled expectations that we're putting on ourselves. So do you feel like you're quite good at that? Kind of like, you know, managing your expectations.
1: I'm getting better. I'm a work Mm. in progress. I'll probably be working on that till the day I die, to be honest. Um, But yeah, I'm always working uh, on that. Definitely. And I think again, I take it, I take it, I I think in terms of expectations, I think that's why it's so important that we're clear on our expectations, but also setting that with whoever the the kind of the the client is, what they will and won't get, Mm. Um, you know, and again, then that gives them choice agency about whether to work with you um, or not. Mm, Uh, But there's also something about having faith in yourself, you know, It's why I keep what I call a lovely feedback file Um, because, you know, I have those moments of doubt and, you know, an imposter phenomenon. And so I have a look at what clients have said and, you know, the fact that most of my work is either repeat business, so it's like past clients coming back to work with me on something different or word of mouth, I don't have to mark it, tells me that mostly what I'm doing is is working well for the people that I'm here to serve and mm. and so if it ain't broke don't fix it mm. there's also something around I don't I, I don't know if you have found this maybe with some of the older women that you've 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 met or spoken to because I know a lot of the work that you've you've done has been around men and mental health but one of the things I've really been finding so I'm 48 I'm 49 soon um so I'm in perimenopause and it's really affected my energy levels mm. m- mentally. And so that's another reason why I take such care of my diary and time and space. So it's, I've got a group of close friends. There's six of us from our undergrad days. So we've known each other 30 years and we've seen each other. You know, through all sorts of things. And now we're at the stage where all our WhatsApp conversations are about HRT. And have you have you read <laughs> Davina's new book? And I'm feeling really tired. And I, I wanted to kill my partner or I wanted to kill a member of staff. Or um and so my conversations have started, particularly with older female clients and some older male clients as well, have mm-hmm. started to become about the next stage of life and how this can manifest in terms of mental health, in terms of energy levels. And, um, and I share my own experiences of that, but um, yeah, it's, I've become hyper attuned to my energy and managing my diary around that.
0: Yeah, it's really good. Cause again, it's, as you say, it's, it's consistently, as you shared earlier, you're consistently learning and there's consistent Mm. like challenges that come your way, whether it's, you know, the loss of someone recently or, you know experiencing menopause or you know men in particular if you're going through then you know a lot of guys get to like 40 start mm. questioning a lot of stuff so i think it's can you know it's always always ever evolving and i think mm. with men- mental health we've always taken a very like short-term mindset of it like it's oh once we do this then we'll be fine but it's, absolutely it's consistently consistently evolving i've got i've got a question that you mentioned we speak about it a lot <laughs> in, in your opinions um psychological safety so mm. What have you seen to be really effective when it comes to creating psychologically safe environments at work?
1: Well, there isn't one thing. So, that's the first thing I want to kind of head off at the pass because, and and you'll know this from the work that you do, everyone and in particular organizations are looking for that like magic thing. (laughs) And there isn't one magic thing, you know, psychological safety. There are a number of things that are required to have a psychologically safe working environment. One of those things is how the leader shows up. Mm. You know, another thing is how the team members communicate with each other and interact with each other and level of familiarity Another thing is the the kind of the the, the protocols almost that you have in place for having difficult conversations where maybe you've got a couple of people who are against the decision. And um, all of that stuff takes time, but it's possible with consistent and persistent effort. Mm. and so often when I'm working with groups of of managers for example so when I do the high performing team course we spend quite a lot of time looking at psychological safety and and the ingredients the factors of that, that help facilitate a psychologically safe work environment you know what the research tells us <laughs> and I can see so you know these are all knackered managers you know they're running busy <laughs> services and they kind of look at me and you can see some of them going oh, And I kind of call that out. And I say, you know, everything's a choice. I can imagine you're sitting here looking at what I'm telling you, looking at the research, looking at the ingredients of psychological safety. There isn't one thing. There's a number of things and a lot of it's you and how you show up. And you're sitting here thinking, oh, I just don't have it in me. And what I say to, to, to any group that I'm working with is that's fine. That's a choice. That's your choice to carry on as you are and not do any of this stuff, but then you have to accept the consequences of that choice, mm-hmm. which is you might not have a psycho- as as psychologically a safe environment as you would want. You might not have as high performing team or as a creative team as you want. But that's the consequence of your choice. So if you want, you know, I was a few of my friends have joked I should write because my saying at the moment with lots of my clients and, and groups of leaders is you can't have your cake and eat it. Mm. So a couple of my friends have said, you should write a book called that. But um, it's the point that you're not going to get to the psychological safety utopia or the high performance, you know, super successful, highly engaged, highly motivated team without putting the hard work in yourself and getting help and creating spaces for others to put that work in. Mm Don't work like that. So there isn't one there isn't one silver bullet. Sorry, listeners, it takes Showing up and showing up consistently, and it starts with you reflecting on who you are and the impact that you're having. What's the shadow that you're casting as a leader?
0: Mm, I love it. Yeah, it's it's like you say, it's an ever-evolving journey, isn't it? It's like mm. I, I talk about how you know we we're very open about mental health now, more so than ever. But I'm in that I'm in that bubble. I don't think that actually is true. <laughs> I agree. When you step out of our bubble, there's a lot of people that still don't see it in the same way that we do. Um, And also like, I always do this in my talk. I ask people, you know, what's the first association you have when you hear the word mental and they're like crazy, mad. Mm. And I'm like, well, yeah, we are talking about this stuff more, but that's how long stigma will take because if we're all still naturally programmed to see mental as mad or crazy, you know, why, what have we seen or what have we been taught? And then secondly, how much does that make it more of a challenge for us? So I'm 100 percent with you. It's like when you're looking at psychological safety or mm-hmm. stigma or any of that. There's, it's, it's, you can't just do a talk on they? It, it can, it can be a, a small part of like starting that journey, but it takes a lot more. I'm, I'm conscious of time. But I've got two more questions. I want okay. To ask you. Um, the first question is is very much about what I get asked a lot, and because you work with a lot of managers and leaders, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to ask you this question, which is. If someone's listened to this and they're in HR or they're like, you know, been tasked with well-being, and they're struggling to get that buy-in, you know, they're struggling to get the leaders to say, Hey, yeah, let's do it. Let's throw some money at this. Let's do this. Let's do that. And they're getting really negative, you know, negative responses to them wanting to do more. What advice would you give them to get that buy-in? So
1: there's a couple of things. So the first is, because I mean that's quite a difficult one to answer because it depends what's been put forward to whoever the decision maker or decision makers are. One of the things, and you all have seen this on things like LinkedIn and other media, um, one of the big criticisms criticisms from researchers in my field is lots of organisations jump to dealing with the symptom rather than the root cause. So let's let's put on a yoga retreat or let's have a wellbeing strategy and health days and and that stuff. And that's in my experience, and certainly the evidence shows, that's a waste of time and money if you are not looking at the root causes of what's causing health, well being, mental health issues at work. And we know that um a lot of it is about there's just there's just unrealistic expectations. on on people you know when there's been restructures and jobs have been cut but the work hasn't gone anywhere Mm. and suddenly you've got people having to do the work of two or three people what do you think is going to happen um so there's something i think so so there's an element of what what have you put in front of the decision maker there's one of the things that i i get practitioners to think about whether it's an hr director or or whoever is understanding what makes the decision maker tick. So if you're sitting down with the chief exec or whoever the decision maker is that you are putting your business case in front of, what makes them tick? What matters to them? And so if you if you're working with someone where it's the bottom line that matters most, um, then your business case had better be about the bottom line and backing it up with what the research tells us about the the financial benefits of sorting this stuff out. Mm. Um, so there's something really about really knowing who you are talking to when you're positioning your case. The second thing I'd suggest is, and I know this is easier for some practitioners than others, but there's always there's always organisations you can reach out to um, to give you some support around making the case. So for example, some of my colleagues at Birkbeck, there's I'll, I'll send you the link. I yeah. shared it early on in the week on LinkedIn. But there's a there's a, a company called Affinity Health at Work. So it's run by a group of occupational psychologists. And they've got f- access free access to their research that they've done for organizations like ACAS and nice. Health and Safety Executive, like toolkits for managers, toolkits for practitioners all around well-being and health and mental health in the workplace and things, practical things that can be done. So don't feel you have to do it on your own. There's stuff out there to help you, but there are people out there who might be able to help you as well, make the case. Mm. And we know in some organizations, whether we like it or not, um, sometimes decision makers may well listen to an external point of view more. And so there's something about, being savvy about how you do that, um, it can be a, it might not feel empowering, but it can actually be a really powerful move to make mm. in order to achieve the outcome you want to achieve as a practitioner. Hopefully that all makes sense.
0: Yeah. No, have a, really
1: I have a tendency to ramble,
0: Paul. No, no, no. Really good. And again, it just highlights again, there's no one size fits all. So no. Like, I remember once, I think it was, yeah, David a CEO of um, Julius Baer, who I've done loads of work with. And I remember like trying to like sell him on the, the finance point because i was like he's the ceo right he's gonna <laughs> love and he was and i think he was just like no <laughs> um i just want to know what impact you're going to make on my people because it's the right thing to do right so it's like every, every and we did an interview with him and his approach is totally different yes. i think it's it's so important that you get that context and what do they want to know what do they want to understand about it because you can't just say oh well all of our leaders want to make money because you know, that might not be, the, that might not be.
1: Exactly. So what matters to them? So really getting to know whoever the decision maker is, whether it's the chief exec or, or the HR director or whoever, what really matters to them? What are the mm. sense you what sense do you get of their principles and values? And then what what's the language that seems to resonate with them? And make sure that your business case, the ideas that you're putting forward, are incorporating that language. Mm. So that it, it's a form of connecting with them and getting that buy in, rather than putting forward, you know, a a, a kind of a standard bland mm. business case based on what others have done. Um, and that's worked for their context. It doesn't mean it works for yours. And as I say, one of the things that I'm passionate about is helping HR and OD and similar practitioners become even more evidence based in in the stuff that they put forward. You know, what do case studies say? What do what does the evidence say? What What's the context you're operating in? What does the research, any kind of empirical research, say? And weaving that together, what does your own judgment say? You know, weaving that together to to create as 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 thorough and holistic uh, a business case as
0: possible mm. that leaves
1: no stone unturned
0: really important. Nice. I've got one final question. Which is a bit of a personal one. I should have, <gasps> um, it's, it's not it's, nice that <laughs> we've gone deeper than this question. Um, can you share one piece of advice that you've been given in the past that's resonated the most with you? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's one that's stuck with me for the last almost twenty five years. So um, I mentioned her earlier, I said to Dr. Chun Judge. She, I was lucky enough to ha- have her as a as a kind of mentor, if you like, when I started out in my career. She took me under her wing, very wise woman. And I remember her saying to a couple of us. Particularly because of the kind of work we were doing, so at that point we were really specialising in organisational development and culture change, and a lot of that, as I say, is about how you yourself as an instrument and how you show up. You know, you are and you are affecting the environment by how you show up as a practitioner. And she was saying that when you are working as a as a as an organisational development culture change practitioner that can sometimes put you in really awkward situations because your ethics might be questioned. You might be walking that tight rope of what's ethically right. Um, you might have to speak truth to power. Often you have to speak truth to power and not be thanked for it. And it can be quite brutal. And so, and and you could end up in an environment that just is really unhealthy for you. It's just, it just doesn't work. And so she, said, you know, as soon as you are able to, she said, I know you're all starting out in your careers, but as soon as you're able to squirrel a little bit of money away each month and get yourself to a point where you never leave yourself vulnerable to having to stay somewhere Mm. where you are ethically compromised and you are deeply unhappy because that's going to affect the work that you do. So try and get yourself to a point where you have at least 3 months salary saved to cover your overheads so that you could comfortably walk away even if you go and get a, an interim job or something and i remember when she told us that that the couple of people that she was talking to when she told us that at that point i was living on overdraft all the time so i was like what are you going on about you know i was in my mid 20s mm-hmm. um And it really, it really, it stuck in my brain. And and so, yeah, as as the years went on, I really kind of squirreled stuff away. And and then when I ended up in a variety of different leadership roles in local government, one of which I experienced extreme burnout, I became mentally and physically unwell. Um, That's when her, that was like 15 odd years later, that's when her wisdom really kicked in because I'd built up this, this pot of money. You know, I'm the main wage earner in our family. My husband isn't able to work because of illness. And when the time was right, we had a year's worth of overheads, like money behind us, enough to live comfortably and pay the mortgage for a year so that I could leave. Mm and so that that advice has always stuck with me and it's something that i always impart to those starting out in their careers as oxykes and culture change experts because the work that we do is often about how we show up and what we role model and the impacts we have there is it's really important that we are empowered to walk away if we need to mm. and you can only do that practically if you if you've squirrelled some money away i know that's not easy for everyone it Certainly wasn't easy for me as I say at the start, living on hand to mouth overdraft, but when you're able to get to that point, do it because it can be life-changing and mm. empowering.
0: Such good advice. There's a good book. Have you read Rich's Man in Babylon?
1: No, but I've heard a lot about it.
0: It's one of the strangest books that I've read, but equally there's like some really key money lessons that have stood mm. the test of time. And it's it's kind of as you've just shared there. It talks, it made me open up my eyes to when I earned more, I spent more (laughs) and you earn more and you spend more, you earn more and you spend more. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, and then that's when in a situation of being in a corporate environment, you can get very attached to that role, Mm -hmm. right? Because now you've got this huge salary. Now you've got this huge mortgage. Now you've got this Mm -hmm. car and finance. You're you're stuck. There's, there's a lack of freedom there that can Mm -hmm. become quite you know, it's it's hard to feel empowered in those moments. So I I do, I love that advice to be able to give you that sense of freedom as well. Um, Well,
1: can I share a quick anecdote on the back of that? So I was saying uh, to my husband's stepmother the other day that I had a big clear out. It was long overdue. I hadn't cleared out my clothes or shoes since I left corporate life in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to feel like I couldn't breathe. There's just stuff everywhere. And I cleared out, bags and bags. Some of the clothes still had labels on Mm. and it it was because I was in a highly paid role, really high profile role, but I was miserable. And the way that I offset that misery was just by buying stuff. Mm. Ironically, I don't really, I've become as tight as you like, Um, (laughs) which just makes me laugh, but um, I don't feel the need to buy material goods because I'm so happy Mm. with where I am and you know I'm not I'm not mega rich I'm not like earning six figures and that's a choice because I want to do good and interesting work but I'm earning a comfortable living and we go on holiday and stuff like that and but yeah i'm not spending money on material things that actually bring me no joy and as i say I, just, I was just mortified to find clothes with labels on and shoes that i'd never worn and bags and it's just cuz i was so unhappy and it, it's really interesting what you say i was spending money on stuff um which i didn't need to once i once i became happy
0: yeah so true um, i will ask you just quickly about the <laughs> Because everyone asks you about the sketches and I haven't asked yeah. you about the sketches. How, awesome. long did they, how long do they take you? Because they're incredible.
1: So on average, they take me about an hour and a half. So I've been doing them since the end of 2016. Um, And I'm always shocked at when mm. you know, quite a few of them go viral. God, I sound really poncy saying that. But I quite a few of them go... Influence, go influence. I, I'll do, <laughs> wind your neck in. But um, it's, it's not completely altruistic. I do, I do them... A, is a way to solidify my own understanding of stuff, but also I'm passionate about making what I think are really useful concepts or mm. sometimes really inaccessible studies behind paywalls accessible to the people that I really want to help. You know, I think if we can help managers and leaders be better, be better at what they do, have a better impact on the people around them, the world will be a better place. And one of the ways we can do that is – is is help them by making stuff more accessible mm. um so that's really what and who doesn't love a bit of coloring in i find it it's almost like a form of meditation paul yeah. um you know get my felt tip pens out and it's tapping back into that four-year-old Haley. yeah but this that. time i stay inside the lines
0: <laughs> i think it's like it's communication isn't it it's like you mm. know some people really like diving deep into the, the research mm-hmm. and the data and other people like seeing a little image and You know, some people like reading reading a quote, or you know, watching something on TV. I just think it's it's Mm. it's, we just need to get the messages out in loads of different ways, and I think exactly. You're supposed to do that.
1: Well, and it's in a hyper-connected, always-on, really frenetic. We're just being bombarded with stuff, Mm. you know, in the 21st century you know every day there's like a new platform to get your head around and and i think anything that can kind of cut through that noise and it's also one of the reasons so lots of people say they really appreciate the fact that i give references it's the academic in me mm. um and i love it when when people choose to dive a bit deeper so i give them enough yeah but if they want to go off and dive a bit more and learn a bit more oh that just gladdens my heart mm. um and ultimately that's that for me is what it's all about
0: amazing well Hayley thank you for showing up today and thank you for and when I say showing up I mean like personally showing up fact <laughs> I know what you meant sharing your your story rather than just like turning up um and and also thank you for for all the work that you do I think it's incredible and it's been a very easy easy conversation so um finally where can people find out more about you if, if they want to get in touch
1: um so that the place that I lurk the most is um linkedin um so i'm on linkedin and twitter um and they i've got lots of free resources on my website which I, i'm guessing you can put in your show notes yep. so yeah there's lots of stuff for people to pillage um free ebooks and all sorts of stuff to to help people have happier healthier working lives
0: amazing and we'll link up to all of that but no Haley, thank you no you're welcome thank you for, no, the- thank you for asking me no worries i been incredible speaking to you
1: thank you